about their bodies, their rights, and their dreams. That's why I think woman-made media is so important, and why we all need to tune in to Feminist Magazine on KPFK. Hi, this is David Barsamian of Alternative Radio, which you can hear right here on KPFK every Friday at 10 a.m. I'm asking you to support KPFK right now. Call 818-985-5735. Again, that's 818-985-KPFK. And choose option two for the pledge line. Or go to the website, kpfk.org. Support independent progressive KPFK now. Thanks again. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles and on the web at kpfk.org, Pacifica Radio for all of Southern California and beyond. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. In today's headlines, updates from Gaza, San Diego flood survivors come together amidst aid delays, Fashion Week renews calls for modeling industry reforms, Head of Homeland Security Mayorkas impeached, military personnel coerced into taking COVID injections, Silicon Valley's dystopian plans for the future exposed. NATO's 2024 war games stoke global tensions, and the non-NATO news with Polina Vasiliev. All this and more coming up. The world is holding its breath awaiting the Israeli military storming the Gazan town of Rafah, where currently 1.3 million Palestinian refugees are seeking shelter. Peace negotiations have currently stalled because, as Israel claims, Hamas wants the release of too many Palestinian prisoners. Since October 7th, over 7,000 Palestinians have been taken prisoner by Israeli forces, which brings the number of Palestinians in Israeli detention to about 14,000. EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell said yesterday that weapons deliveries to Israel should be reduced as the country's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has ignored international calls to avoid civilian casualties. According to the latest UN figures, about 28,500 Palestinians more wounded in Israeli thousand more are fuses during a press saying, quote, Well, if you believe that too many people are being killed, me safe begging. Please don't do that. Please protect civilians. Don't kill so many. How many is too many? What is the standard? But all the pleading remains in vain because Netanyahu doesn't listen to anyone, Borrell stated. NBC reported earlier that despite the public statements of unconditional support, Biden has expressed anger at Netanyahu, reportedly calling the Israeli prime minister an a-hole on at least three occasions and a pain in my ass in private conversations. While about 750,000 Palestinians in Gaza are at acute risk of starvation, 
Israeli ultranationalist finance minister Bezalel Smotrich is currently blocking U.S.-funded flowers is the U.N. Relief and Works Agency, according to Axios. The International Court of Justice, on Monday, received South Africa's request to intervene in Israel's planned ground assault on Rafah, stating Israel is in contempt of the previous court decision. On January 26, the world's highest court had ordered Israel to take all measures to prevent its troops from committing genocide against Palestinians in the besieged Gaza Strip. As the situation in Gaza keeps deteriorating, the Israeli parliament voted 25-4 to allow Israel to outlaw foreign media outlets, which the defense ministry designates as harmful to Israel. The bill is colloquially known as the Al Jazeera law, after the outlet it specifically targets. Just yesterday, two Al Jazeera employees were seriously injured in an Israeli airstrike in southern Gaza. According to the network, reporter Ismail Abu Omar had to have his leg amputated, while cameraman Ahmed Matar suffered life-threatening injuries to his face. 126 journalists have been killed in Gaza in just four months, making it the most deadly war for journalists in recorded history, including two world wars. In a devastating turn of events, the Great Flood of 2024 has left more than 1,200 San Diegans without homes, revealing a stark divide between the swift action of local communities and the sluggish response of government officials. The flood, which struck on January 22nd, resulted in at least three fatalities and inflicted damage on approximately 500 residences, sparking a widespread outcry for more effective disaster management and support. The deluge, described as the fourth wettest day ever of the region, unleashed over 150 billion gallons of rain. In the aftermath, residents found themselves in a desperate scramble for shelter, with local agencies and nonprofits stepping in to fill the void left by the absence of federal aid. Earlier this week, the federal government dispatched representatives from the U.S. Department of Agriculture to assess the damage and explore potential support through the Emergency Watershed Protection Program. Despite the allocation of FEMA disaster relief funds, the San Diego Board of Supervisors has yet to implement an immediate plan for aid distribution. The community's frustration reached a boiling point during a recent city council meeting where Mayor Todd Gloria faced pleas from affected San Diegans demanding faster relief efforts. My daughter was out there rescuing neighbors, elderly neighbors. I was calling the, the, the city at 8 o'clock in the morning knowing how it gets there. No answers. We heard that this guy named Ricky, he's the one that swam to the storms race, unclogged them with me and my neighbors. Five hours sitting there, cold water. I'm disabled. I couldn't get up on top of a roof. He couldn't get on top of Five hours right there. Firefighters just in canoes. We got people from other places coming, bringing us food, tacos, everything. We thanked them. Lost everything. Everything. My daughter was barefooted. She got her feet cut up to rescue my Miss Dorothy. Cancer patient called me crying. I couldn't do nothing. I called my daughter, Jasmine, please go for Miss Dorothy. She swam over my barefooted. I'm tired. Do something, Todd Gloria. This community needs a plan now, not next week. We need it now. 
Adding to the complexity of the situation, some residents raised concerns about cloud seeding operations conducted prior to the floods, questioning their potential impact on the severity of the event. In response to the crisis, Governor Gavin Newsom announced California's request for a major disaster declaration to support San Diego County's recovery efforts. Meanwhile, hundreds of residents took to Chicano Park last week, calling for expedited relief and criticizing local officials for neglecting essential infrastructure maintenance despite long-standing warnings. But amid the chaos, the spirit of community shone brightly. Local heroes, such as Melissa Grace, founder of San Diego Rise Up, rallied volunteers and resources to aid those in need. Here's Melissa Grace speaking with Chair Supervisor Melissa Vargas. Good afternoon, Supervisor. Hi, how are you? Do you have a minute, actually? Can I just walk and talk with you real quick? I'm not going to hassle you. That's not my style. I just want to let you know that I've been boots on the ground down in Southeast for the last 10 days, Me volunteering too. all my time, and it is in dire need. I know. The community has been being fed by an organization called Herencia España. His name is Salvador Candia, uh -huh. and he, his bank account just went into the red because he was buying all the food, and the food is shut down, and now people are not being center? able to eat. Is he going to the center? That's what I'm trying to figure out. That's why I came down here, because no, the there's a massive, the well, there's a massive lack of, of communication and resources that are happening right now. So one of the challenges is the um, jurisdiction stuff. So we are working with the city of San Diego, and we have county services at the LAC Center, which is in southeast um, in mountain, the Mountain View the Park? Mountain yeah, mm -hmm. so you're suggesting that he goes there or somebody on his behalf goes there Just to allocate for some funds? Oh. Because he's, he's served up 6,000 6, hot meals yeah. on the block. He's yeah. been there since day one. I know, and I know. These, these small grassroots community-led nonprofits that are actually doing the work, the resources are completely drying yeah. up. Yeah. yeah, I think he should go to the, to the center and let them know what's happening so that they can start organizing and letting them know. And then I think the best bet is making sure that Supervisor Montgomery, Montgomery staff. That's, right. That's my constituent, yeah. so yeah. I was just in so there talking to their office. The That's and then that they can take it. So today we had a meeting about how fast we can get the money out for our communities and all that good stuff. So, oh, so housing is our first priority. So I, I think that keeping yeah. people fed yeah. has to be on the mark there. Yeah. I've never asked for a favor. No, no, no. I know. Please I know. keep I this on. You. Please keep this yeah. on your heart. Okay. You got okay. it. Okay. In a parallel development, legal claims have been filed against the city of San Diego, alleging mismanagement of its stormwater infrastructure and demanding the establishment of a stormwater utility to fund necessary projects. These claims, aiming for class action status, highlight the city's alleged negligence and its disproportionate impact on impoverished neighborhoods. Shane Harris, president of the People's Association of Justice Advocates, said his organization is assisting residents with filing claims. Harris, who was flanked at a Monday morning news conference by former San Diego City Attorney Mike Aguirre and former Chief Deputy City Attorney Maria Severson, said several people who have filed claims say they've brought up flooding-related issues with the city in the past, but were told this is not a priority. 
Harris said this could have been prevented. The city of San Diego could have taken measures to address this long-standing issue. Aguirre said city officials have been aware for years of deficiencies in its stormwater funding and outdated infrastructure. He cited a 2018 report from the city auditor's office that stated city officials have been informed of stormwater funding problems on a regular basis dating back to the 1990s. In the aftermath of the Great Flood, as the pace of official aid lags, the true momentum of recovery is propelled not by the promises of government, but by the community's collective action, neighbors reaching out to neighbors, volunteers bridging gaps, and a united front of compassion and support weaving a stronger social fabric. Rebel Alliance News. Build a wall around the kids. Should I give it all away? Don't wanna have to defend my territory from friends. Don't wanna live like it's me versus them. For things I can't keep anyway. That was Sam McCabe performing Servant Son off his album Alter Fire, available now on Spotify and Apple Music. And you're listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. As you know, KPFK Pacifica Radio is a pure community effort. It's something that we all do together to benefit every community member for over 65 years. Everyone does their part. We work all day for free to bring you uncensored news that you're not going to find anywhere else on the dial. So please do your part and go online now to kpfk.org and donate to our news program, Rebel Alliance News. We have to earn our keep here too. So let us know that you're listening and that you care. Please donate now. Everything helps. Go to kpfk.org and become a member of our sustainer circle by donating $25, $50, or $100 a month, or gladly more, and join our KPFK family. Please go to the phone and call 818-985-5735 and donate right now. At the spectacle of New York's Fashion Week last week, the city was aglow with the latest in haute couture and avant-garde design. However, this celebration of creativity and artistry is shadowed by a pressing dialogue that cuts through the industry's glamorous veneer, the systemic exploitation that has long marred its reputation. Now, new legislation is calling for reform within the modeling industry, highlighting not just the plight of female models, but also the often overlooked abuses faced by male models. In the last few years, the dark undercurrents of exploitation in the modeling world broke into the popular consciousness. The sordid tales of Jeffrey Epstein and Gessleen Maxwell, who allegedly leveraged modeling opportunities as a cover for their child sex trafficking operation, underscore the depths of manipulation and exploitation within the industry. 
The exposure of fashion powerhouses like Leslie Wexner, former owner of Victoria's Secret, as Epstein's alleged principal financier shook the fashion world to its core. Here's Epstein survivor Maria Farmer. I was really grossed out by Epstein. Just the way they behaved, they were so um, ostentatious and like nouveau riche, like always buying things and all about things, especially Guylaine. I have a lot to tell you about her, a lot. And I know her well. You know, I lived around her for a year, like lived in all of their houses with them. Oh my gosh, that woman is the most dangerous asset for Israel that you can even imagine. I mean, she is so dangerous. By 1995, she was full-time what she called the lady of the house. And she was full-time getting children for him. And the other person who was always going around with her, this is really weird, Donald Trump's ex-wife, Ivana, was always in the car with her. I mean, constantly. No one, not one news organization will mention that. I wanted Ivana Trump to explain herself. Why were you going out acquiring children with this woman? Because they'd come back and there'd be a pile of kids. What would happen is she'd say, I'm going out with Ivana, and she would say, you know, Maria, come along. And I would ride in the limo, and the driver knew what they were doing. We would go in the limo, and she'd be chatting with Ivana, and then she'd go, oh, wait, hold on, I see someone. And she'd run out and, like, talk to a child and exchange information with them and then come back, and then that child would be, like, the next day at that. And I would say, what are you doing? She said, I'm scouting for Victoria's Secret models. And these were, like, kids who had just gotten out of class, so they had their uniforms on, 12, 13, 14 maybe at the oldest. And so I would say to her, why are there children modeling for Victoria's Secret? They don't even have breasts, you know? And she's like, oh, no, um, we nubiles for Victoria's Secret. We need new. That was the word she used constantly, nubile, nubile. And I admit that I didn't know what it was, so I looked it up, and I was like, that's kind of gross. Like, why do they have to just have started their period to model? In a post-Me Too environment, models are increasingly opening up about their experiences of the dismissal of their abuse reports and coercion into unfavorable contracts. Calls for change also resonate with male models whose grievances echo those of their female counterparts, encompassing issues from sexual misconduct to the fundamental lack of control over their own images. Challenging the misconception that the industry's predatory practices are solely directed at women, dozens of men have made allegations of sexual misconduct against high-profile designers and photographers like Mario Testino and Bruce Weber, painting a portrait of an industry-wide epidemic of exploitation. Currently, male model Alex Shanklin is leading a class-action suit against major modeling agencies who he describes as glorified pimps accusing them of complicity in systemic abuses. Recently, the integration of artificial intelligence in the modeling industry has opened Pandora's box, with agencies exploiting digital technologies in ways that verge on dystopian. Body scans and the creation of digital avatars, often done without clear consent or equitable compensation, represent a new frontier of exploitation. High-profile instances, such as Levi's use of AI-generated models of color, have sparked outrage, highlighting a sinister trend where technology is used not to enhance diversity, but to sidestep the genuine inclusion of diverse human and models. The Fashion Workers Act represents a beacon of hope in this landscape, proposing reforms that would hold modeling agencies accountable and enforce a fiduciary duty to act in the best interests of models. This includes ensuring contractual transparency, safeguarding health and safety, and addressing the emerging challenges posed by the use of artificial intelligence within the industry. 
Advocates such as Shanklin say that these legislative efforts, while long overdue, are vital for establishing a safer, more equitable environment. As Fashion Week captivates with its display of artistic brilliance, the voices calling for reform from within the industry grow more potent. The industry stands at a pivotal moment, faced with the challenge of dismantling the structures that perpetuate abuse and ensuring that the beauty celebrated on the runway is reflected in the ethical treatment of every model who walks it. You are, you Breaking news, U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas impeached. The U.S. House of Representatives has impeached Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, on charges of not managing the surge of migrants illegally crossing the border with Mexico effectively. The resolution to impeach Mayorkas was narrowly approved, with a vote of 214 to 213 on Tuesday, seeing only three Republicans breaking ranks to join all Democrats in opposition. This historic development signifies the first impeachment trial for a cabinet secretary since 1876. The 22-page impeachment document accuses Mayorkas of ignoring judicial rulings related to the border crisis and being accountable for the significant increase in migrant numbers at the southern border. It further alleges that Mayorkas has provided misleading information to Congress and contends that his actions pose a continuing risk to national and border security, acting in direct contradiction to his obligations and the principles of law. The document states, quote, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas has consistently breached legislative mandates concerning immigration and border enforcement, directly leading to the illegal entry of millions of foreigners into the U.S. annually, with a significant number remaining in the country unlawfully. An earlier attempt to impeach Mayorkas narrowly failed last week with a 214 to 216 vote, where four Republicans voted alongside Democrats. The impeachment has been heavily criticized by Democrats and the Department of Homeland Security, with Representative Tom McClintock from California arguing that the charges against Mayorkas warp and misinterpret the Constitution. He also forecasted that the Senate, which holds the responsibility for the conviction or acquittal of the secretary would dismiss the charges. The debate over increasing funding for border security has been ongoing for months amidst an unprecedented migrant influx. Republicans have been adamant that funding for the border crisis must be secured before they would approve a substantial military aid package for Ukraine. Don't push me, cause I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep from going under. More than 70% of U.S. military personnel who took part in an independent survey reported feeling pressured into receiving the COVID-19 vaccine following a mandate from the Pentagon in 2021. 
The findings come from a newly released independent survey conducted last autumn covering all military branches and including both enlisted personnel and officers. The participants had an average service duration of approximately 16 years. Of the 229 respondents, 169 were on active duty a significant 87%, equating to 199 individuals, had not received the COVID-19 injections marketed as vaccines. Among the 30 vaccinated participants, only two expressed a voluntary desire for vaccination. 20 of the vaccinated respondents reported adverse effects from the injections. An overwhelming 93% of respondents claimed to know someone they suspect was harmed by the injections. The survey revealed widespread reports of pressure to accept vaccination and boosters, with nearly 95% of dissenters experiencing repercussions, such as threats of legal action, hindered promotions, and barred access to professional development opportunities. About 90% knew of someone who was discharged or compelled to exit the military due to the mandate. The report highlighted that merely 3% were briefed by medical professionals on the vaccine's potential risks, which include reproductive harm to women and an elevated heart disease risk. One veteran noted a significant decline in trust towards military leadership due to the mandate, stating that the ending of the mandate in January 2023 was a positive move, but that actions must be taken to ensure nothing like that ever happens again. He said, quote, Having witnessed so many people oppose the vaccine for religious concern and more, I was able to witness the greatest battle I've seen in my life. It wasn't a battle fought on a foreign field, but it was a battle against good and evil in our own country." End quote. Unanimously, all 229 survey respondents supported holding Department of Defense leaders accountable for the mandate's execution. Requests for comments from the Department of Defense, Army, and Air Force had not been answered at the time the survey findings were published. The world is a vampire. Rebel Alliance News. Santa train. And what do I get from my pain? Betrayed desires. In the looming shadow of tech giants, our privacy and personal freedom are silently crumbling. Independent journalist Whitney Webb pierces through the digital facade, exposing the grave risks of our AI-ensnared world and calling for a bold stand against Silicon Valley's unchecked dominion. Remember how Jamie Dimon a few months ago was like, well, we should just seize people's private property for climate change policy. Remember that? Like private property doesn't exist to Jamie Dimon. If his friends at Goldman Sachs, who basically designed all this crap that the UN is backing and green finance and blue finance, if those projects decide that they want your property, they'll just turn off your money and take it. Do you really want to give these guys total control? BRICS countries, Western countries, all on board for agenda 
to 2030, the people in charge of climate finance for the UN, Mike Bloomberg, the billionaire, and Mark Carney. That's insane. And to think that Mark Carney and Jamie Dimon and Mike Bloomberg and Bill Gates just care so much about the planet and not about robbing you of all of your wealth, which is what they've spent their entire careers doing. I just... Come on, guys. The control and influence of major financial and tech corporations on our digital and physical properties, as highlighted by Whitney Webb. Webb's insights into the plans of figures like Jamie Dimon, Mike Bloomberg, and Mark Carney, under the umbrella of the United Nations Agenda 2030, expose a concerning future where private property and personal wealth could be at risk. The involvement of these financial magnates in climate finance initiatives raises questions about their true intentions. Are they really about saving the planet, or is there an underlying motive to consolidate more power and wealth? As we navigate through these revelations, it's crucial to question the narratives fed to us by those in power, and consider the implications of surrendering control over our financial and environmental resources. What That's we the- have right now is them literally tokenizing all their existing rackets to move it into this new like fourth industrial right. revolution paradigm. That's literally what is happening across the board and people just like don't recognize it. And they're cloaking it and all this stuff like uh, specifically with like SDGs and Agenda 2030. It's like this will make a better world. And then you actually like look at it and it's like this is insane. Why are all bankers in charge of this but i mean you go back into like the un like the un secretary general kofi annan like at the end of the 90s was like yeah so you know how we used to be at least viewed as like a the public sector of the world all coming together to like democratically vote on stuff well now we've basically been taken over by corporations and how the business of the businesses of the world is our business Absurd. the un's not your friend guys here's an example of why you should never <laughs> trust the bankers and still there's going to be that handful of people with the hashtag Jerome Powell is my pal and Jamie Dimon is my knight in shining armor. In order to create this space where they want to like push people into this new system, there's going to be chaos and there's going to be instability. And so the comfort and convenience that keeps people asleep will be disrupted. What people Mm -hmm. do in that point in time is the most critical about this whole thing, about how it plays out. Seriously, like that is the most important window. And again, that is why it's so important to be local because, okay, there's a big cyber tech on the financial system. The internet goes down for a couple of days. What are people going to do? They're going to go out in the street and look for answers, figure out what's going on. This is why it's important to know what's going on and couple that with having connections in your local community so you can direct people about what needs to be done and what's happening at that point in time. It's like very important. Well, also the internet, when it turns back on, isn't going to be like the internet now at all. They're going to put AI in charge of like literally all content. Your ID is going to be tied to not just everything you post online, uh, but everything you read and consume every site you visit. And they plan to pass all of that through AI to determine if you're a threat to the system or not. This is all like predictive policing. All of this stuff is built into this system. Specifically in the U.S., the Biden administration already has the policy framework developed. They've had it since, I mean, they first came in to power in 2021. Continuing our exploration into Whitney Webb's insights, the tokenization of traditional financial rackets into the new era of the fourth industrial revolution reveals a troubling shift towards digital centralization and control. The push towards fulfilling the Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, and Agenda 2030, led by bankers and corporate giants, ostensibly aims to create a better world. However, Webb urges us to look critically at who is steering these initiatives and question their true motives. 
The transformation of the United Nations from a public sector collaboration into a body influenced heavily by corporate interests underlines a significant shift in global governance. This pivot towards corporate dominance and decision-making processes concerning global issues like climate change and economic development poses serious questions about the democratic integrity of such efforts. In this context, the role of technology, particularly the advancements in AI and digital surveillance, is poised to play a pivotal role in shaping our future. The potential for these technologies to be used for predictive policing and controlling access to information is a stark reminder of the importance of safeguarding our digital rights and privacy. Do you know how many bots the US government and specifically just like the military alone has to like shape narratives online on social media? And, and think about how ChatGPT has just like <laughs> boosted that kind of stuff. The whole plan yeah. is to not have anyone know what's real or fake anymore. And AI is, I mean, is being used for that. It's like overtly admitted to in this book that Henry mm -hmm. Kissinger and the former Google CEO, Eric Schmidt, wrote together. It's explicitly about that. And then having us be so dependent on AI technology, specifically generative AI, that we become cognitively diminished and we can't even write anymore. We can't communicate without AI. And then we can't perceive reality, what's real or not, without AI telling us. And that's this whole gambit here with like censorship going on right now. AI is going to be in charge, not just of deciding what content you can see, but it's also going to be producing the bulk of the content. Humans totally. won't be anymore. And that's already happening, guys. The best way to deal with that is to spend a lot more time in the real world talking to real people because like what you see on Twitter and all of this stuff, it's going to be more insane than it is now. Right now it's more insane than it's ever been before. And that's only going to continue escalating because it's just, it's going to be nuts not focusing yes. on all these distractions and psyops that are constantly going to be online. Another aspect of this, like remember in 2016 when like Hillary Clinton, they, they were all saying it was like 99% chance she was going to win based off mm -hmm. of literal fake polling. They just like, made it up that same tactic they do to people all the time to make us think that like we're alone and we're isolated and no one else sees this stuff to demoralize us and facebook specifically experimented with trying to manipulate news feeds to make people feel that way it's like a matter of record as it was like 10 years ago they still do yeah. that stuff all the time if you're not looking at, at social media as like a war zone you need to otherwise you are very susceptible to all of this stuff Eric Schmidt, yeah. right, who basically runs like AI national security policy for the US uh, too, and is like funding all this science and technology policy stuff. Basically, key officials in that at the Biden administration are being paid, their salaries are being paid by Eric Schmidt. It's like super illegal and political reported on it and like nothing was done. They were like, well, I see you found out and that is that. That guy has an insane amount of power. He was just on a podcast talking about what needs to be done about misinformation. And he was saying, we need to get everyone's ID tied to social media. And then when people post misinformation, report them to law enforcement. Do we need another Occupy Wall Street? Yeah, dude. But it's, uh, I mean, they don't want that. They don't want that. And so what has to be done is people have to divest from Silicon Valley and Wall Street as much as possible. Because basically... What I call the blob that basically runs the U.S., it's the national security state, it's Silicon Valley, and it's Wall Street, okay? It's harder to divest from the U.S. government if you're living in the U.S. than it is to divest from big tech and Wall Street. You can take your money out of J.P. Morgan and Wells Fargo and Citi, and you can stop using Google products, Microsoft products. 
You can uh, not use OpenAI maybe, which is basically Microsoft um, and all of this other stuff um, because they plan to do a lot of bad stuff with your data. Whitney Webb's analysis of the strategic use of bots and AI by the U.S. government to control social discourse underscores the urgent need to remain critical of the information we consume and the sources it comes from. The potential for AI to diminish our cognitive abilities and redefine our grasp on reality is a call to action for all of us to engage more with the physical world and foster real-life communities and connections. In the face of escalating digital manipulation, building resilience through local networks and direct action becomes paramount. As we consider the future of our digital and physical spaces, it's clear that divesting from the monopolistic grip of Silicon Valley and Wall Street is not just an option, but a necessity for preserving our freedoms and rights. The power to shape the future lies in our collective action and the choices we make today. I'm not Joe Biden, and you're listening to Rebel Alliance News. Rebel Alliance News. Rebel Alliance News. Rebel Alliance News. You are listening to Rebel Alliance News on KPFK 90.7 FM. The 2024 NATO War Games are currently underway in the largest NATO exercise since the end of the Cold War. You might call it the dress rehearsal for Doomsday, but is it only a rehearsal? Don DeBar has more. Today, we make Vladimir Putin regret the day he questioned America's resolve. And we make clear to others, like China's President Xi, not to test our determination. That was Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer from New York speaking on the floor of the Senate Tuesday following approval by the Senate of a $95 billion national security funding bill that would send another $61 billion to Ukraine and $14 billion to Israel for the wars being conducted by those two countries. Another $5 billion would go to arm Taiwan. That bill passed 70 votes in favor and 29 opposed. Eight Republican senators spent most of the night filibustering against the proposal. That comes in the context of the largest military operation in Europe since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. And it follows pronouncements by a number of Western officials that war with Russia in the next couple years is inevitable. We're going to take a look at that with analyst Mark Sloboda, based in Moscow. We spoke with him via Skype on Wednesday. Mark, what are we looking at? In the beginning of February, NATO kicked off with a major war games right on the Russian border while the conflict is going on with Ukraine. And these are not just another war games. Steadfast Defender 2024, you got to love the naming of these things, is the largest NATO war games since 1988. There are 90,000 troops, hundreds of tanks, infantry, fighting vehicles, air, hundreds of aircraft, naval contingents, cyber warfare. And it's not just a show up for two weeks, war game around and go home. This steadfast defender is going to continue for at least four months. So 
I would be very surprised if all of these troops go home at the end of four months, right? Major war games like this are, of course, perfect cover for bringing more troops up to the Russian border, certainly as a contingency, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're rehearsing for a war, so you put your men and material, to put it in those terms, uh, in place for that war. And you turn everything on and start moving it around, right? Yes. The chair of the NATO military committee, the Dutch Admiral Rob Bauer, says that NATO must prepare for war, direct war with Russia. The UK Defense Minister Grant Shapps says the United Kingdom must prepare for war with Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. The Swedish government has told their people, announcing the return of conscription of a draft military to the country, that they must prepare for war with Russia. The Dutch, the Netherlands, chief of the army, has said the entire society must prepare for war with Russia. The Finnish defense minister has said NATO predicts the start of a new Cold War with Russia that has the potential for turning hot. The German defense minister, on one hand, says that there's no threat of Russia attacking NATO, but that Germany must prepare for war with Russia. The top German general, Bundeswehr General Karsten Brauer, agrees they must prepare for conflict with Russia in five years. But, but I'm sorry, wait but, a minute. I'm preparing for a war against someone that's not going to attack me. There we go. Romania. The Romanian army chief says that conscription needs to be reinstated and that Romania must prepare for war with Russia. In the United Kingdom, the outgoing chief of the general staff, Patrick Sanders, gave a speech saying that the country must first they said they must rapidly expand the military there have been articles out in the british press arguing lately that the united kingdom really doesn't have an army at this point <laughs> uh, but that they must begin conscription to prepare a citizen army to fight russia and he lauds the swedes have already taken that step it must be a whole-of-nation undertaking to train and equip a citizen army that could be activated in the event of a hypothetical war with Russia. Meanwhile, Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, on one hand tells us that the conflict with Russia could last for decades, but that there is no threat of Russia directly attacking NATO. So what's going on here? On one hand, you have all of this scaremongering, and it's more than scaremongering. When you're, when you're talking restoring conscription, across EU states, training mass citizen armies, and talking about decades of conflict. That's more than just scaremongering. I'm sure that is an element to it. It is to create a state of uh, political emergency to push more taxpayer funds to support Ukraine. That's a big part of it. But it seems to be more than that. The Russian foreign intelligence chief, Sergei Narishkin, has suggested that this type of scaremongering is trying to intimidate Russia, i.e. to push them to the negotiating table sooner with less 
demands to scare them. And Russia is having none of it. Russia, meanwhile, is increasingly talking that there's really no diplomatic solution or even anyone to engage with diplomatically. The Kiev regime has actually passed laws forbidding their leader and politicians from negotiating with the Russians. Right. It's illegal. Right. It's it's illegal. Obviously, there is no trustworthy partner in the West after throwing away the February 21st agreement, the Minsk Accords, and all the, the raft of treaties before that, and the peace negotiations in the first year of the war being carried on and then dunked as soon as Russia agreed to withdraw its forces from the area around Kiev. So Russia seems no trustworthy partner there. And increasingly, we've heard from Medvedev and Lavrov and others that the only way this ends is regime change. So I would suggest that neither side is bluffing, that both sides still have maximalist goals. We keep hearing from Stoltenberg and numerous Western leaders that Russia must not win in Ukraine. That would be a defeat for NATO. We learned from the former Ukrainian ambassador to the United Kingdom that the United Kingdom has contingency plans for sending troops to Ukraine. And the conditions are a catastrophic development of the war, such as the continuation of the occupation. Uh, that, that doesn't seem particularly catastrophic to me, but that tells you what their threshold is and that they won't admit to it, but the, the plans are underway. And we have a leaked plan from London, a proposal for London to send a NATO expeditionary force to Ukraine in the event of an unfavorable development of events for Kiev in the Ukrainian military theater of operations. Well, I mean, they've already pretty much admitted that that's where they are, right? Yeah. So I would suggest this will probably, when Kiev itself comes under threat, a year or two down the line in the conflict. They talk about sending troops into Ukraine up to the Dnieper River, establishing a defensive line there, freeing up Ukrainian border troops, also sending troops to the border with Belarus, establishing a no-fly zone over Kiev regime-controlled parts of Ukraine, as well as sending NATO forces into Finland and Norway to spread out Russian forces there and possibly to conduct strikes within Russia against national infrastructure and air bases. Yeah, uh, they're, they're talking about direct war with Russia. Meanwhile, the Russian government made clear and very loudly said multiple times that the introduction of British or any other troops into Ukraine would be considered an act of war, a declaration of war on Russia, and they would be absolutely legitimate and priority targets. And I would suggest that a year or two down the line with NATO not able to accept defeat because they've invested so much political capital in this conflict that this is where we're heading. That however unprepared they are, they will send troops into Western Ukraine as a human tripwire force and believe that Russia will not hit them risking war with NATO. The context for that in Russia, they stated the obvious with Austin, who is the joint uh, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, disabled and uh, the president disabled, that the decision making about the use of nuclear weapons is in the hand of two disabled people at the moment with all that. Entail. Three, so, if you count Kamala Harris. <laughs> so, all right, Mark, we'll speak with you again next week. Thank you for this. Thanks for having me. For KPFK. 
I'm Don DeBar. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are your international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. Israel continues its siege on the Gaza Strip, and that includes besieging medical facilities, such as the case of Al Nasser Hospital in the southern city of Han Yunus. More details with Telesur correspondent Noor Harazin on the ground. As the Israeli forces continue its offensive on the uh, Gaza Strip, and now it is uh, the same scenario that happened in Kamal Adwan Hospital, uh, in Ashifa Hospital, in the Indonesian Hospital, is now happening again in the Al Nasser Hospital, which is located in the heart of Khan Yunis city. The Al Nasser Hospital is actually the second biggest complex, a medical complex in Gaza after the Ashifa Hospital, and now it is being under the Israeli fire. For two days now, the Israeli bulldozers have surrounded the Al Nasser Hospital, uh, shoot towards the walls. They even destroyed the wall, uh, wall fence surrounding the uh, hospital. They shot at uh, displaced people inside the hospital and a number of people were actually uh, killed over the past days, including women and children. And the paramedics inside the hospital did not even manage to go on the front gate of the Anasar Hospital to evacuate them. This is how bad the situation there. There is also one thing that is not making sense for the Palestinians inside the hospital, the displaced people, which is the Israeli army actually uh, called and asked the people who are inside the hospital to evacuate. But at the same time, they are shooting anyone who moves inside or outside the uh, hospital. So actually, this does not make any sense. How uh, is uh, how are the Israeli army asking the Palestinians to evacuate while they are shooting at people? And there is already a number of people who were killed. That's why actually the Palestinians for now are not evacuating or leaving the hospital. The issue of arming Tel Aviv is increasingly coming into question as the Dutch Court of Appeal has ruled to halt any deliveries of F-35 fighter jet parts to Tel Aviv. That's amid concerns that Israel continues to violate international law by striking civilians in Gaza. As a result of the Israeli military actions in Gaza, large numbers of civilians have been killed. Previously applied limits with regard to collateral damage in the current conflict have been expanded. Further, the policy of warning civilians of an attack has been abandoned. There is, therefore, a clear risk of serious violations of international humanitarian law. And yet it is also considered sufficiently plausible that the F-35 fighter plane was actively used in these violations and also carried out bombings. The verdict follows a petition from human rights organizations that claim the export of the parts makes the Dutch government complicit in any Israeli war crimes. The fighter jets have been employed in the assault on Gaza after the events of October 7th of last year. Activists have hailed the verdict as a victory. Obviously very happy with the results. That is a super important uh, verdict, not just for the Netherlands, but I think it uh, sends out a clear signal uh, to all countries who are still supporting this this horrible horrible war in Gaza. Finally, they agree that um, you know this violence against uh, the Gazans is not possible, cannot co- continue. So I'm really happy that the court ruled this way. This is one step in the right di- direction. Uh, this is how it should be. Uh, Dutch complicity. Stop it and stop the genocide. Stop being complicit in this genocide. 
Meanwhile, the Dutch government says it plans to lodge an appeal at the Supreme Court. It's arguing that the decision is a government matter, which is not defined by the court's ruling. Independent journalist Sonia Vanden Ende believes the Dutch government will do anything and everything in their power to continue those supplies. Well, I think they will react very badly because uh, ex-Prime Minister Rutte of the Netherlands, he's already went to Jerusalem today to uh, speak with uh, Netanyahu. And I think he will excuse because of the ruling of the court. So, yeah, I think Israel will react very badly and the Netherlands will do anything in their power to, you know, to get these spare parts from the F-35s to, uh, to Israel. Because, you know, there's a lot of money invested in that. And, well, the judge said that uh, within seven days they uh, should stop it. But who knows, within these seven days they will send a lot of spare parts. So, yeah, it's hard if they uh, do it or not. But my guess is that in, in the end effect they will appeal and they win the appeal and they will continue delivering the F-35s. That's what I think will, will happen. I hope not, but I think that's what will happen. Hundreds of people have gathered outside the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's office, urging the government to use its leverage to prevent Israel from launching its planned invasion of the southern Gaza Strip city of Rafah. They also called Sunak a war criminal over his staunch support for the occupying regime. Saeed Pereza reports from London. An emergency protest outside the UK Prime Minister's office to try and stop an imminent massacre called for by the Palestine Solidarity Campaign and a coalition of other similar organizations. Week after week, pro-Palestinian protesters have come out in huge numbers to demand that the British government call for a permanent, immediate ceasefire in the Gaza Strip and to terminate its military and political support for apartheid Israel. And they're galvanized by the knowledge and hope that the pressure they're ramping up on the British government will eventually stir action. In a sign of that pressure working, only hours before the protests, the UK's Foreign Secretary David Cameron joined other European leaders to caution the Netanyahu regime to think twice about its mass incursion into the southern Gaza city of Rafah, which shelters 1.4 million displaced Palestinians. We are very concerned about the situation and we want Israel to stop and think very seriously before it takes any further action. But above all, what we want is an immediate pause in the fighting. And we want that pause to lead to a ceasefire, a sustainable ceasefire, without a return um, to further fighting. Hands off Gaza! Hands off Gaza! But while that may seem like a change in the UK government's tone, the protesters here say it doesn't go far enough. What kind of disturbed and dystopian world are we in? We're asking for peace is become slander. Um, I just do not understand. I cannot comprehend what more needs to be done. Do they need to see one million Gazans being exterminated on their TVs or drowning in the Mediterranean Sea? Because that is the options that Israel is giving them. Another demand here, an end to UK arms sales to Israel. According to the campaign against the arms trade, between 2015 and 2022, the UK licensed more than half a billion dollars worth of weapons to Tel Aviv. Our UK government should be having no trade with Israel, let alone arms trade, let alone trading equipment that kills Palestinians. The fourth national demonstration of the year is planned for February 17th. Organizers say they're expecting hundreds of thousands to turn out to hold the British government's feet to the fire. 
There have been angry scenes on the streets of the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Kinshasa police clashed with protesters after many started demonstrating outside Western embassies. They accused the countries of failing to rein in neighboring Rwanda's support for the M23 militia, which is waging a war against the authorities in the DRC. Local journalist Ihotu Odo has the details. Protest comes as hundreds of people are fleeing their home in the city of Masisi in the eastern region of Congo due to the attack of M23 rebel group, one of the armed groups which is currently attacking that part of Africa. Now on Monday, uh, the police in the Republic of Congo fired tears into the people just to disperse the protesters who are expressing their grievances uh, over the failure of the West to uh, curb violence which is arising from this eastern part of their country. We're here to demonstrate for the cause of our country, but the police are firing tear gas and bullets at us like it's nothing. We're demonstrating for our country. What the police are doing makes no sense. Those who are dying in the east are also our brothers. Those who are dying in the east are our Congolese brothers. Where I am, my heart aches. It hurts us so much. Why are the Americans, the French and the entire international community watching us getting killed but saying nothing? Now also, uh, in this part of the country, they've also, the land is blessed with so much resources, mineral resources. And this is why the armed group is trying to take control of the land. Now, the protesters while expressing their grievances, burnt tires, um, the U.S. flag and that of um, Belgium. And so their grievances and the protests they are coming out today is to say that why is the West not giving us support? Why is the West supporting or not using their influence to curb violence which is arising in the eastern part of the country? And that's all in today's international news from non-NATO media. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News... I'm Paulina Vasiliev. And you've been listening to KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Thank you so much for joining us on this special Valentine's Day show. And we'd like to make you our Valentine. And it's not just because we're in the middle of our fun drive. But please make a donation. Call 818-985-5735 or go online to kpfk.org and donate to Rebel Alliance News. If you do, we have an amazing archive that is only second to the Smithsonian Institute in documenting the social justice struggle since 1949. For a donation of $250, you can get a Best of Jump Tribe with historical interviews, sound bites, and events from Martin Luther King to Malcolm X, Cesar Chavez to the Occupy Movement, and thousands of movements in between. Grab this information for yourself and your kids before the mainstream media rewrites history again and vanishes these gems into the memory hole. Please call us at 818-985-5735 right now or go online to kpfk.org and donate to Rebel Alliance News. Rebel Alliance News thanks our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all the tireless contributors like Don DeBar and Paulina Vasiliev, what great pieces they contributed today. And a special thank you to our producer, Ziri Rideau. Visit us on the web at rebelalliancenews.com. 
You can also listen to us on the KPFK Rebel Alliance News Podcast on SoundCloud and Audacity. Coming up next is Feminist Magazine. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back again tomorrow at 6 p.m., and I'll be back again with you next Wednesday at 6 p.m., and I hope you will join us again. For KPFK, I'm West Siegmiller. I was turning the radio dial on the car, trying to find something other than uh, the usual dribble and fluff and nothingness on the rest of the airwaves, and I just uh, stumbled across KPFK, and I was just drawn to it like a magnet, and I was just listening to it intently, and all of a sudden, I said, I, I have got to pull off the freeway here. I found the nearest telephone booth. I called my wife and said, you have got to turn on 90.7 FM. I will talk to you when I get home. This is incredible. What I noticed was different right away was that people were being interviewed at length and when they were talking about the purpose for the station the reason for being was to promote understanding among peoples of all races and and, uh, from all countries and all classes and to provide information about the events of the world that were not reported or not reported completely or in depth by